Morning, friends. Well, it was, what, eight months ago I was here in January, and I gave you part one and part two. Today, part three. And once more, we're going to be looking at some themes from the book of Joshua that I really thought would be appropriate for you and the first church community. Interestingly enough, as we began this thing back in January, Rick wasn't here on staff yet. So part of this was what words from God, from Scripture, would be helpful for you guys as you begin these transitioning. And here he's now in place, and I'll give you back that word as well. One of the joys I've had is being with young leaders like Rick. And I'll, I'll go upstairs after my time online with him to Gwen in her office, and I'll say, man, I love those guys. I love those guys. And I also said this to her, because in our group, I have several groups, but in this one here, Rick's from our tribe. Two other guys aren't from our tribe, but we've become friends. We become brothers. And I said, I see these young leaders of today, and I think the Church of Jesus Christ is in good hands. And I think First Missionary Church in Bern is in good hands. Amen. Amen? All right. So, Joshua chapter 22, if you've got your Bibles, your phone, your iPad, whatever you're using, uh, please mark. That text, we'll be looking at it also by way of the screen in a moment. You know, preaching is a funny thing. While I'm speaking to you ultimately, I'm really speaking to myself immediately. That is to say, more times than not, sermons arise out of that which God is nailing me on. This morning is a case in point along those ways. One of the issues I've been grappling with for quite some time, is my tendency to think the worst in a situation instead of to think the best. Or to think the worst about a person in a situation instead of defaulting to thinking the best. Anybody here struggle with that at all? A tendency to think the worst. Well, I want to talk this morning about that because here's the deal. The implications of rushing to judgment can get real ugly real fast in jumping to conclusions before you know it. You're in the threshold of breaking relationships. By way of introduction, a cute little poem I came across some time back just showed how easily this can happen. You can see it on the screen as I read it to you. A woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shops, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man sitting beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag in between, which she tried to ignore to avoid making a scene. So she munched the cookies and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also quite rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She'd never known when she'd been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. 
She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat, then sought out her book, which was almost complete. As she reached in her bag, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies <laughs> in front of her eyes. Some of you saw this coming, didn't you? If mine are here, she moaned in despair, the others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. <laughs> I'll never eat cookies in an airport again without thinking <laughs> about this lady here. Talk about a classic example of rushing to judgment jumping to a conclusion when it was all wrong. In Joshua 22, we're going to see how close a group of friends came to coming to blows for the same reason. In your Bibles and on the screen, Joshua 22, beginning in verse 1, then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You've done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and if you've obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, in this very day, you've not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan." But be very careful to keep the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes. Let me set the context for you here. When the Israelites began to start taking the promised land, a few of the tribes, as the land was taken on the east side of the Jordan, thought, this is pretty good territory. And they staked their claims there. Permission was granted to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh to have their allotment on the east side of the Jordan. You can see a map here accordingly. Notice there on the east side of the Jordan, you've got three tribes. Permission was granted for them to do this as long as they still sent their troops across the river to help the rest of the nation get its allotment as well. It was agreed upon. And so people from the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh came over to help their brethren. In so doing, they realized it wasn't going to be easy and it wasn't going to be quick. It took 10 years, 10 years before the land was fully conquered, 10 years. At long last, the Easterners now are going home. You got the picture here? Their troops are now coming home. They're warned, make sure you keep honoring God. Picking it up in verse 9. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh and Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Gililoth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, 
in the half tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. An imposing altar. The word literally means great in size. Seems like a lot of effort, wouldn't you say? They've been 10 years since they've seen their families. Why would they stop, spend the time, make the effort to build this, what looked to be an altar? Well, the troops got to the side of the river and they said, wait a minute. We know the story here about how even though there's a river between our tribes and their tribes, we're part of the nation. But what if in the future, somebody says, you're from the wrong side of the river? You don't belong to us. What if in the future, there's a sense that we're no longer part of the family? What if we build a monument here to remind future generations that we're all one? Seems like a good idea, doesn't it? In order to safeguard their connections, they build this monument. The text says it looked like an altar, a place for sacrifice and worship. But we'll discover it was never meant to be that. Rather, it was simply a monument. Seems innocent, wouldn't you say? Does anybody see a problem that could arise from doing this? The text continues in verse 11. When the Israelites heard that they built an altar on the border of Canaan at Gelaloth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly, get this, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. You say, man, they had just fought side by side for over 10 years. Now, they're going to go to war against it. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on here? What's going on here? To the people in the West, what the Easterners had done flew in the face of a warning that Moses had given years earlier. You see it on the screen from Deuteronomy 12. But you're to seek the places the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. And there, observe everything I command you. Moses made it real clear. We're all going to worship together one place. One place one altar, one people, one God. It was a sign of their unity. But it was also a warning and a preventative measure to keep people from setting up altars anywhere they wanted to because then there could be a taking on of the Canaanitish ways. Syncretism, pollution, by all worshiping in the same place, the worship could be pure. This wasn't some arbitrary law. This was important. So when the Western tribes assumed that they built this altar, they realized this was no small thing. And they were prepared to go to war. 
to actually take up arms against their brothers. The problem was they did not look into the situation before they drew their conclusion. They were ready to break relationship simply because it appeared that something was wrong. Some unknown author said this, the only exercise some people get is running others down, sidestepping responsibility, pushing their luck, dodging deadlines, and jumping to conclusions. Some of us friends are very good at jumping to conclusions. We see something that appears to be wrong. We talk to someone and it seems like it's not right. And before you know it, we have tried them, found them guilty, and sentenced them because of our assumptions. We're very good at jumping to conclusions. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed. We read, in fact, in verse 13, so the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest of the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourself an altar in rebellion against him now. And Reuben, Gad, and the half of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel know if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we've built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? That's why we said, let's get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it's to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. Down to verse 29. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. And when Phinehas, the priest, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites and Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praise God, and they talked no more about going to war against them. Wow. You talk about a close call, huh? Man, a terrible tragedy, barely averted. Here's the deal, friends. Many times a tragedy isn't averted. In our day, 
in our friendships and in our churches. Misunderstandings arise. Assumptions are made. Accusations follow. And in the end, friendships are lost. Partnerships are ended. And churches are split. Not because of doctrinal error. Not because of moral failure. But because somebody rushed to judgment, made an assumption, drew a conclusion, and drew their sword. Here's the thing. There's not one of us in this room or watching online who's immune to this. Every one of us are susceptible to do this. So let me give you three thoughts here by way of practical application. Here's the first. Set your default to think the best and not presume the worst. I don't know why it is, but all too often when we hear something confusing or see something troubling, our first thought is, what's gone wrong? We think the worst instead of the best. We build, begin to build a case against that person in our mind, and then, get this, then we need prayer support. So now we share our concerns with other concerned people. And now the disease spreads because one conclusion led to other conclusions. It can be something so minor. You could be walking through that lobby out there and you say good morning to somebody and they ignore you. And you think to yourself, huh, who do they think they are? I know they heard me. I know they saw me. They walked right by me. Too busy? Too important? And you begin to ponder this. And it begins to start getting in your craw and you think, you know what? This church isn't even friendly anymore. Why, that's happened before. We used to be such a friendly church. Now, we're not friendly at all. I think I'm going to go to another church that's friendlier. You say, you've got to be kidding me. That stuff happens? Oh, yeah. It happened to me. Sometime back, I was walking through the lobby of fellowship, and uh, somebody said, good morning, whatever, ho hoping that I would stop, I'm sure, and chat. And I kept right on going. I just, I kept right on going. And I later found out they were hurt. Who does Pastor Dave think he is? Too big for his britches? He won't even stop and say hello? Doesn't think I'm important? And it began to build and build and build. And finally, it got to the place where I heard they were leaving the church. I tried to track them down. They told me about the morning, and I said, on that morning, I just heard of a serious situation that I had to get to. 
I didn't simply ignore you. I ignored everybody. I had to get there. They'd already burned their emotional bridges. The poison had taken root and they left the church and I've not seen them since. A rush to judgment that caused a relational breakdown. Second, get the facts before you draw your conclusion. If I could add another word, get the facts fast. Conclusions can be drawn so very, very quickly. Conclusions lead to reactions. Reactions trigger emotions, and emotions are relational killers. Here's the other thing, friends. Many times in the midst of our confusion and our emotions, we share it with others. Yeah, I'm really concerned about what I'm seeing about this staff here at First Burn. I'm really concerned with something I heard the other day in the foyer. I'm really concerned. Here's the crazy thing. Many times, and I've seen this happen, you eventually get to the place to where you realize you rushed to judgment. Your conclusion was wrong, but you've already poisoned the water table of their thinking as well. And unless you go back to every single person you talk to and say, whoa, I was so wrong. They are left at the mercy of your poisonous remarks. Again, I've seen it happen. People leaving the church because they heard something that wasn't true but was never corrected, and they're gone. Rush to judgment, it can be so very, very dangerous. One more thought. Let your commitment to unity trump your need to be right. Was the building of this monument a good idea? Eh, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe not. Indeed, down through the years, we see with the Israelites that some things that they tried for all the right reasons went terribly wrong, didn't they? It may not have been the best idea in the world. Given that, the Western tribes could have demanded, tear it down. But they didn't. Even though they were a bit nervous about it, they let it happen. In short, they were willing to lose. See, we so love to win, don't we? I've been playing sports most of my life. Now I'm old. But I used to play sports a lot. I've known a lot of winning, and I've known a lot of losing. And I can tell you this, I like winning a lot more. I want to win. And I found that I not only want to win with sports, I want to win when it comes to circumstances. But here's the deal. Having to win is not the most important thing. It's unity. It's unity. I know full well there are times when you must say, this is too important to let go. This 
is of supreme importance. We can't let this go by the boards. But isn't it true that more times than not, relational breakdown is not born of something that important. It's born of two stubborn people who both want to win. I want my preference. I want my way. And if you don't come to my way, then I'll take the highway. I have seen more times than not tombstones and relational graveyards for the dumbest reasons. At the end of the day, it was because somebody wouldn't lose. And in the end, everybody lost. There will be times, friends, when breakdown occurs and you hold the moral high ground. You're as right as right can be. And you've got your brother-in-law and three elders who think you're right. But sometimes to demand to be right is very wrong. Are you willing to lose to keep unity? In the children of Israel, this was a bullet they dodged. You know, in the great scheme of things in the book of Joshua, this set of events from chapter 22 seem relatively minor, don't they? I mean, you've got the crossing of the Jordan, the tumbling of the walls of Jericho, the sun standing still, these amazing things. But as big as those were, All might have been lost here in chapter 22 when these people rushed to judgment. And for all the potential that this church has, and I think it does, keep in mind, all it will take are some individuals who rush to judgment who jump to conclusions, who demand to be right, and all of the redemptive potential that could be the story of first burn can be lost. Most churches that go through crisis don't do so because of moral failure, financial problems, or doctrinal compromise, it's because people simply wouldn't lose. And with that, the kingdom lost. So I ask you, First Missionary Church, will you commit to relational integrity? Will you commit to thinking the best? Will you commit to determining there's something more important than winning? It's the kingdom. It's love. Will you commit to that? I hope you will. 
Toward that end, I'm going to ask you if you would please just stand. And before Mike comes to lead us in the last song and Rick closes in prayer, I'd like us to lift our eyes and voices. Let's read this together with a sense of conviction, shall we, friends? Together? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort.